Hello. Hello. We are. How are you? I'm okay. We're on Hollywood Boulevard. Yes, and we know that we were not on Hollywood Boulevard last week. We did a very special thing. Um, so if you were not a regular listener to the Block podcast, um, it probably didn't have much appeal to you. But there was a big real-time uh, Melrose Place reunion for the main cast. Uh, so we watched, and then we talked about it. So it was, you know, one of those anomalies. But now we're back with some current culture to uh, catch you up on as well. Um, I feel like I had stuff and then completely forgot what those things were. So I'm going to throw it over to you. I can take it, but I will also say the reason you don't remember what your stuff was is because you didn't put any notes down about them. I know, you know, cause I know that we were watching something and I was like, oh man, I should really talk about this on, you know, or like oh, no. I was reading something and I was like, oh, I really need to, or I, it, there was something I was doing and I was like, I really should talk about this. And then. I forgot what it was. Well, so we have something to talk about next week then. Yeah, if I can remember what it is. It'll come to you. But if you remember later on and you want me to be able to remind you, just to let me know. Okay. So so you take it. You tell us what you have been seeing. So we're going to do like a mid-season report card for a couple shows that we've been watching as we shelter in place. Um, You know, it's like a 12-month season now where where shows just pop up all the time so um sort of late in the game hbo has been airing a show called run uh half hour roman action comedy something hybrid um starring uh donald gleason and Merritt weaver um donald gleason great Irish actor, uh, has done Martin McDonough plays, has been in the the new Star Wars trilogy. Really good. Really, really good and versatile. Uh, Merritt Weaver, who's probably one of my favorite actresses of my generation, was on Nurse Jackie, was in the Netflix series Godless. Um, I've also seen her do theater in New York. She was in um, the Netflix miniseries Unbelievable earlier this season, which was excellent. Uh, Two great actors, in a show that I believe is seven episodes and I have seen four of, and I really don't like it. (laughs) (gasps) No, you know why? Because this was actually one of the ones that I was like, oh, I think I might want to see that. But I was really on the fence. So why don't you like it? Um, Because I think what it's doing is a thing I've seen some other shows do that I don't like, which is it holds too much back from the audience. And as you slowly learn more and more about it, they are treating it like a reveal or a gotcha moment, but really you're just giving me basic knowledge, basic information, basic exposition. So we don't know much about the plot and we don't know much about either of the two leads. So why am I supposed to care? That's the macro level. Um, It is set in the present day and these two characters, Billy and Ruby, um, used to date years ago, nearly two decades earlier when they were in undergrad. Uh, She has since gotten... Wait, 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 wait. How old are these characters supposed to be? Um, I think mid to late 30s. And how old are the actual actors? I think mid to late 30s. Okay, because I feel like... 2003. Okay, because I kind of feel like they might be too young if they were 
in undergrad for 20, 20 years prior. So, okay. Used, so let's say 10 to 15 years 40. ago. Like, yeah, I'm just like, holy shit. Like that they're playing really young or old for their age. Um, okay. So they were youngish adults, but adults by the time they dated and now they're later in life, closest okay. to my age, give or take however many years. Okay. Um, so knowing nothing about them watching, first watching the show, uh, I may inevitably give away some mild spoilers, but I think what this show considers spoilers, again, I consider necessary information. We first meet the Ruby character played by Merritt Weaver in a Ralph's parking lot in L.A. She gets a text that says run. It has been sent by Billy. So this is apparently some like pact that they had when they were still younger together, that if they were really at some sort of emotional breaking point, they would reach out to the other. And if the other responded with Ron, this is what they would do. So he flies in from Ireland. She flies across country from L.A. to New York. They meet. They get on a train. They take the train to Chicago. And then they will eventually do some more stuff. Um and yet we know nothing more about them other than they seem to both be l- abandoning things behind, leaving their established lives, whatever those might include, behind. Um, and so there is a lot of flirtation. Um, there's a lot of withholding of information. They're very clearly being cagey about certain things. Uh, it's not clear why they did not stay together. We don't know what precipitated them both being open right now to running and doing this thing. And we certainly don't know what this whole thing includes or why they concocted this specific mission. Why would you both fly into New York and then take a train cross country together? Why would you not just fly both and meet, say, in Chicago? (laughs) Something like that. Um, It's also, I mean, there are more empty seats on this Amtrak than I have ever seen in my entire life. That's because of COVID-19. And like, I I don't find any of it plausible, but I also don't find either of them likable. Um, You can have flawed characters. You can have self-absorbed characters, which these are. But you have to work then uh, plot-wise to make me like them. Like right. to make me root for them, to make me want to stay on board this journey, let alone this COVID Amtrak. Right. Um, you know, and it's like, you know, it sort of harkens back to like the glam of, of say, like the tw- 20th century and other screwball comedies where like the, the lovers fight until they get back together or they're promised to other people, but they're really meant for each other. But we don't really have that here because the, I mean, I will spoil the end of the first episode. So if you really are not wanting to be spoiled about the show, stop listening now and then turn back in two minutes later. We find out, and it's not really a surprise, the Merritt Weaver character is married and has two kids. So she's eventually, whether she goes back to her family or not, she's currently abandoned them and is wanting to have an affair with Billy, this old-time boyfriend of hers. I already hate her. I think that's indefensible and I don't care what happens because for me, the story is right now you have left your family behind. I don't care what adventure or hijinks or shenanigans await. None of that is the same size as what you have just done and what this show is writing off as, as just backstory. So, okay. 
Yeah. Okay. So there's, they don't give you a reason why she's doing this. No, though, over the next couple, um, episodes, they, you know, they give you dribs and drabs. She may at one point have been severely depressed or had a breakdown. She may have been unhappy. It may not be a perfect marriage. She may be disappointed with the way her life has turned out. To me, that's like blah, 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 blah. But it isn't like her husband is horrible to her. She's like, you know, whatever it is. It's just, she's just, oh, I shouldn't have married him. Like, or, or she's having... Though she has not yet vocalized that, that's the extent of it. Yeah, or, I mean, the having worst... like a mid- midlife crisis or something. Right, right. Which, if we saw what premeditated all of that, would be one thing, but we don't, we haven't yet. And even if you tell us that by the final episode, that's stuff we just need to know earlier. Like, this doesn't really work as a caper, because I don't know what the mission of them coming together and seeking something out cross-country is. There also seems to be something weird going on with the Billy character. He's being shady about something. He is a kind of guru uh, wellness speaker, um, and a a business colleague of his seems to be trailing both of them. Um, And again, we don't know why. We we don't really know why. and she's played by Archie Panjabi, who was on The Good Wife until she and Juliana Margulies apparently hated each other, and then she was off The Good Wife. Um, so we don't know the why, but we know from the first time we see her that, like, she's clearly got them in her sights, and there's something, you know, like, nefarious about everything she is doing as she meets both characters with that when she enters the series. Um, so again, it also goes back to my complaint about the way these TV series work, which is they have a premise, but not really a plot. And it's stretched out enough to fill six or seven or eight episodes. Um, And then there's really nothing else to do with it. That's a movie. That's not a series. Um, So. Yeah. Cause it kind of sounds like, like, like every episode is like more of the same. Kind of. Yes. I mean, it's kind of like an antiseptic version of, Romancing the Stone, just set on Amtrak, going cross country. Um, but, <laughs> but in Romancing the Stone, we at least knew everything there was to know about the Kathleen Turner character before the adventure began. Right. In fact, Romancing the Stone is like a perfect example of a perfect romantic comedy screenplay. You know, it's so funny because I was actually thinking about that movie the other day and how much I wanted to do a rewatch. I love that movie. <laughs> you should. You should. I, I, love might, that movie. I might do that too. Oh, can I, um, I'm, essentially done talking about this series. So I'm going to go on a tangent, but we can (laughs) move on from it afterward. You know what I decided I'm going to do as I pause to take a drink? What? Oh, wait. I'm filling in the the dead air while Doug pissed Okay, we're done. Okay. Okay, So Alyssa and I do like old movie nights and we're starting to do more of watching old movies together. Okay. Um, We watched Singing in the Rain on Saturday night. Which I love it. I think it's great. I think it's a masterpiece. I think it's just wonderful. But I said, and do you know the the movie at all? Um, It has been about a million years since I've seen it. So I barely remember it. I just remember moments. Well, the the long story short is the dawn of sound um, means the people that were in the silent pictures are going to be out of jobs because some of them don't have the right voices for the talkies. Right. So, and the, the supporting actress character played by the actress, Jean Hagen has a terrible voice. And essentially she is the one, uh, I mean, she's a brat. The movie, 
portrays her as as like a shallow conniving brat and they bring debbie reynolds in who has a wonderful voice and she's going to become a star and and get together with gene kelly's character but i was thinking about you know nowadays we would say all these things about how misogynistic the attitudes are towards uh the supporting actress character lena lamont played by gene hagan so what I'm thinking I'm going to start doing is as we do rewatches of all these movies, whether it's from the 30s and the 40s or the 70s and the 80s and and like introducing some of my old favorites to Alyssa and vice versa. I think I'm going to do a recurring column of revisiting these things, looking at them firmly through a modern lens and seeing do they hold up or not do they hold up, but do they violate the way we seek to sell, tell stories now, if that Absolutely. makes sense. So that's just a pitch for something that I decided this week to start. Okay. And I don't know what our next movie will be, but I will what respond to that as well. Um, uh, so yes, uh, another show that is, I think has reached its halfway point for this season is Killing Eve, which is a show I would be very curious to get your take on if you saw it. I think you might like parts of it and hate parts of it. Have you ever seen it? I have not seen it. And I know that it's been sort of on my radar and I don't remember why I haven't seen it yet. I think it streams on Hulu. So you can catch the first two seasons on Hulu and then like, well, I don't know if, you know, if COVID will change the whole game now, but probably six months from now, they'll drop the third season as well. Okay. Um, but it's, it's, you know, Sandra O oh is, is an MI6 and she is drawn to this genius psychopathic killer named Villanelle played by Jodie Comer. Um, and they have this sort of, um, incestuous is not the word I'm looking for. It's not even accurate. I'm trying to think a symbiotic kind of relationship where they are both constantly like preying on on the other um there are you know starting in the first season um when eve played by sandra o discovered her you know there were not just one instance but several instances where they were they had face-to-face encounters and instead of killing either one the good guy killing the bad guy or vice versa um they were like infatuated with each other and let the other one go um that can only keep happening so many times. And yet that's what has continued to happen throughout each season where it's kind of like a shit or get off the pot thing. I don't believe that you're good at your job. If you keep letting the bad guy go, I don't believe you're actually a killer. If you keep, keep to seem to keep being obsessed with the one who is trying to kill or arrest you as, as a bad guy. Um, and it's, it's based on a series of novels that I have not read and I don't know how different they might be, but, but tonally the show is odd because it's truly a very dark comedy about a killer who dispatches people, uh, with, with no difficulty and no remorse. Um, but then sometimes the characters are left to actually mourn those left behind and it doesn't really work. And it's also just very awkward in how it's, you know, they have, the villanelle character is always in these crazy outlandish costumes it's like oh look at this they're going for things that are to borrow modern parlance iconic but Mm -hmm. without really being earned and it's like it's too crazy it's too stupid the stakes then become too low um so i guess i'm not really as much of a fan of it as a lot of other people seem to be uh i think the 
I mean, I think the reason this show has succeeded in this moment of TV watching in our culture is because it's got two female leads um, and that one of them is Asian, which is great contextually. But when we come to the content of the show, every episode, I'm just like, oh, please, I don't buy this. Why is this happening again? Oh, I'm actually like pulling up because because you had mentioned the costumes. I pulled up a Vogue story about um, Villanelle's outfits, right? And Vogue, right, is which like, is one of like its calling cards. That yeah, and Vogue is like, and she dresses very much like Chloe Svegny. Uh In some ways, it's not always Chloe Sevigny chic, but Se- yeah, yeah, whatever her name. How do you say her last name? Sevigny? Um, I said Sevigny. Sevigny? I don't know. If that's okay, right. I have no idea. But yeah, it, it has that sort of like, and I don't understand this. Like, like, like the first image that came up, it looks like she's wearing my grandmother's curtains. I mean, like, like legit, like this flowered jumper thing. And I'm like, wow, that's like my grandmother's curtains. <laughs> um, but that's, I think that that, I, I hate to say it, but that sort of high end fashion bullshit is like, it like it's the thing that gets the those magazines all a flutter. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's basically where I am. Yeah, yeah, and those editors, um, and and I kind of think feel like it gives a show a perception of popularity that might not be not necessarily be there. You know, if that yeah. makes sense. Oh, it totally makes sense. Yeah. Okay, I'm sorry. Keep going. No, 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 no. You're good. I mean, I, I will pause now to those listening. Have you been watching Ron? Have you continued to keep up with Killing Eve? Am I wrong? Do you hate me? We would love to find out uh, what you may think. Um, what was the uh, other show? Um, a show called Belgravia, which is airing on Epics, and it's um, the brainchild of Julian Fellows, who did Gosford Park, and more pertinently uh, Downton Abbey. And this show has the same look and feel of Downton Abbey, though it's set in the 19th century. Um, and I've only seen two of what I believe are six episodes. Because... I can talk about this. I saw the first episode and I forgot. Oh, oh, oh well, then you talk. I've been doing all the talking. You talk. <laughs> no, you keep talking because I want to know what you thought. Um, well, all I was going to say is I've only seen the first two because I thought that we got epics and it turns out we just got the first two on epics and, and it's not part of it's our cable Netflix. package otherwise. Don't you have Netflix? It's on Netflix. That's how I do have Netflix, but I didn't know it was on Netflix. Yeah, interesting. So it is on Netflix. Wait, is it? Was it Netflix or was it on Amazon? I think it was on Netflix. I'm going to check all of them right now to see if it's available. Yeah, it was on um, Netflix. But so it's kind of set set up like a Dickensian uh, story where uh, there there is a well-to-do family. Um, and then tragedy strikes and a grandchild is given away. And then we jump 25 years into the future and, and we see what has happened with this now kind of like young stud grandchild. Um, it involves secrets and I think it's going to involve lies and blackmail. The more that I see, um, what I haven't seen yet, and it may very well be that I just have to keep watching is as opposed to Downton Abbey, which was more of like the upstairs downstairs juxtaposition mostly i'm seeing like the upstairs people the 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 rich or the fallen rich so far um so so we'll see if there is more of that but i mean i've tried to be vague because i've already given away so many spoilers for run that i feel like i've got to defend this one uh be more protective of it but what did you think of it 
I think that I had the wrong show. Oh. <laughs> what <did> you <laughs> like Sorry. <laughs> no, because Julian Fellows... Okay, so this may not be on Netflix. Oh, shit. Julian Fellows had another show out at the, around the same time that was a, about soccer, and it was the English game, not Belgravia. Oh, I'm game. sorry. My okay. bad. Well, yes, that's also Julian Fellows. Yeah. Okay. So keep going. <laughs> um. Well, if I can't watch more of it, um, I'm, I was thinking maybe I should wait and watch the rest and then weigh in. Um. Well, that's kind of all I wanted to say. Oh, like the, it wasn't. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to say too much more plot wise. Um, I'm curious to see where it goes, and it's very much like. Down. I mean, the music sounds almost identical. Uh, I, I will say the main reason for me to tune in was the cast. The two leading uh, women are the female roles are played by Tamsin Grieg, who is a really great um, mm-hmm. English actress, maybe best known stateside for uh, episodes, um, and Harriet Walter, who's one of the great stage and screen actresses um, and a great. Shakespearean interpreter. Um, so it's lovely to always see them. Um, and I'll keep watching alone just for the two of them, even if I think the plot is just so, so, um, and we'll see, hopefully there's a way that I can catch the rest of the episodes. Also Tom Wilkinson, uh, shows up on the series. Um, so it's, it's a terrific cast and, um, and I'm sad now that it's not going to be as easy for me to watch it. <laughs> I'm sorry for getting you excited. Well, no. It's okay. Sorry. Right. It was a, a momentary amount of excitement. Yeah. I mean, you know, same time period, same creator. I got confused because um, Belgravia and the English game dropped it around the same time. And I know that Belgravia was one of the ones I wanted to watch, and obviously I don't have epics, so I won't be able to watch it, but I did catch the first episode of The English Game, which is essentially about soccer. Yeah. Um, and, and these sort of, like, again, Julian Fellows with the upstairs-downstairs, like, one group of soccer, like, soccer, who knew, learned something new, is actually a wealthy man's game. Yeah. Um, and it was played at, I guess, Cambridge and Oxford and the Snooty Colleges, and it's and this is about a team of laborers that um, that go up against uh, the snotty Oxford people um, to basically win what would have been the unprofessional cup. And it looks like again because I'm I haven't seen more than one episode, but it looks like this might have been the sort of beginnings of professional soccer because there's this whole idea of like, well, it's it's a game for gentlemen. It's not something that you do professionally. This is not your job. This is just for gentlemen, just do it. Because the idea is the factory owner actually paid a really two really good players um, that lived in Scotland to come and work for him in his factory so that he could, they could play on his team. And, um, and because he thinks that they can lead his team to greatness and it does become, and, and then there, it becomes like this whole labor thing because it is, you know, the, the, the workers are constantly going out on strike. And so there is definitely this sort of like, you know, upper class versus working class dynamic going on there. And, um, and, and, but a lot more, 
a lot more violently than downtown was. Um, yeah, you sure. Know, downtown was more, you know, the servants were, I guess, believed that the wealthy owners were family, were looked at them as, as family, looked yeah, they to cared a degree. Yeah. Um, this, I would say there's a lot more, um, conflict between the, the classes, um, particularly with the working class people, um, that, and that leads to much more unrest than there was in Downton, which I thought was super interesting, but I don't care enough about soccer to keep going. Yeah. Like I just kind of like the soccer stuff. I was like, eh. it was just a very eh watch for me, which kind of bummed me out because it should have been fascinating and it wasn't. It definitely could have been. I know. I'm, I believe that. Well, there we go. Julian Fellows, we have given you two shots and they have both proved abortive. One because it was boring. The other because you don't give me epics anymore. So look, <laughs> I can only do so much. But you tried. And, well, and I paid for it. I just, they, you know. Time Warner Spectrum just keeps restricting what I have access to so far. Fine. Fine. Which gives me reason to do other things, like read. So I can actually talk about a book for the first time in a while, because usually I'm catching up to things, like, way after their publication date. So but I wanted to talk. Book. Yeah, I wanted to talk about a book that I really, really liked, and it came out around Thanksgiving of last year. So not it's not that far in the past. Um, it's called Nothing to See Here by Kevin Wilson, um, who has written a couple novels about uh, kind of crazily estranged families. And this book, he's a Nashville-based writer, and um, the book is also set in Tennessee. And it's about a woman named Lillian who comes from, if not the wrong side of the tracks, the downside of advantage. Uh, she has a poor single mom and doesn't have much money. And as a high schooler, she gets in to uh, prep school um, and becomes best friends with her roommate who comes from a lot of wealth and a lot of advantage. Um, and Lillian ends up taking the fall for the roommate when uh, drug bust finds the rich roommate Madison's drugs in the room. So her family ends up paying uh, the poor woman, Lillian's family, to take the hit for her and she gets expelled. Um, and as a 20-something, her life is kind of in shambles when she gets a phone call from this woman, Madison, who is now married to a very powerful politician. Um, and Madison asks her to essentially move into their mansion, the guest quarters, and play governess to her husband's twin children from his first marriage. Um and it turns out that there is a secret about these kids and she basically needs the governess to take care of them and hide them because if the public caught sight of these kids or learned too much about them, it would uh, affect the the husband, the politician's career. So um, you find out pretty early on what that secret is and it seems ludicrous, but one of the great you know things of beauty to Kevin Wilson's book is that he – makes it all very, very plausible. His descriptions are believable. And the um, the crux of the story is ultimately how Lillian sort of comes into her own while taking care of, of these two kids. Um, and it's sort of like them against the world. 
Um, and, and just his turns of phrase and the way his portrayal of the main character, Lillian, is, is so, uh, detailed and sensible because she's a very practical person dealing with a very impractical situation, um, that I loved it. And it was, you know, like every page, like you, you know, you just flip through, uh, from one chapter to the next to see to see what happens. Um, so I really couldn't um, recommend it higher. Nothing to see here by Kevin Wilson. Oh, cool! I'll see if my library has it. It's a quick read, so I think yeah. And and I got it on an e-reader, so you, I'm sure you can too. Yeah, because I don't. It's not something that I would normally read, but I will give it a shot because you um, you've intrigued me. Yeah, I'd be curious to hear what you thought of it if you do. Cool. So there you go. A plug for Kevin Wilson. And, oh, the only thing I had wanted to talk about, the Pulitzers that were awarded yesterday. Yeah, I kind of haven't really been following who got what. There's there's not a lot to say, and there aren't a, a ton of of true surprises. But um, I did want to mention that the Pulitzer winner for drama went to a musical. It's the 10th time in 90-something-odd years. I don't know if it's quite 100 that's happened. Um and it was a musical called A Strange Loop, which is an off-Broadway musical that my awards body had showered with nominations this year. Um, and I'm very happy that it won. This is honestly a year where if they had chosen to not give an award out, as they've done several times in the past, I would have been okay. Because there was no, like, home run. There was no, like, forever changing the form work of drama right. that I read or saw. Um, but of everything that I saw, this was the one that I had hoped would win the most. Uh, so I was, so I was very glad. And, you know, it's um, written by a guy named Michael R. Jackson. And I think it's semi to almost completely autobiographical uh, about uh, being a, a gay black man trying to navigate his way through uh, both a career as a writer and dealing with men and how they judge each other and how his family views him and a lot of those things. And he also, since uh, my beloved was quick to point out, had not one, but either two or three references to the Real Housewives franchise is obviously a big fan of that, too, because he managed to shoehorn that in. So that's the first <laughs> Pulitzer winner for drama to make multiple mentions of the Real Housewives. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. Anecdotal, some might say, but putting it out there nonetheless. Oh, well, that's most excellent. <laughs> um, and one other most excellent thing before I let all of you dear, sweet, patient people go. Um, I don't know if you heard about this, but a sort of odd thing happened last week during self-quarantine where there was a hashtag campaign to get one of my all-time favorite albums, Madonna's Bedtime Stories, to hit number one on the iTunes chart, and it worked. Really? Yeah. So uh, Bedtime Stories is the one that most famously has Take a Bow. Also has Secret and the, the title song Bedtime Story, which I love. Um, and it did well. The song Take a Bow is Madonna's longest num running number one single on the Billboard charts. But the album itself did not hit number one. Um, this was not one. Of, I'm surprised. This was not my, one of my favorite albums from her. Well, it it was definitely a departure. It was kind of a transitional thing for her at the time, but to me it was also very 90s in ways that was both good and bad. But I don't know. I love Take a Bow. I love, um, I love Bedtime Story. I love, uh, oh, what's the other one? Human Nature. Uh, yeah, I liked it a lot. Do you know why there was a push to get it 
into the I, number one I spot? could not tell you, but I know the same thing happened the week before for uh, Mariah Carey's big comeback album from 15 years ago, the one that had We Belong Together and It's Like That on it. Uh, and and I think that also worked. So I don't know. I think a hive mind is just doing weird, crazy, splintery things online. And and uh, I guess whatever is left of the Madonna Coalition said, let's do this. So they kicked off a justice for bedtime stories hashtag and enough people downloaded it. Hot damn. I mean, hey, look, Ray of Light remains my favorite album by her. It's my second favorite. <laughs> really? Really? Well, yeah. yeah, I think I would put like I would almost put like a prayer at number one, but that's basically just because I think like a prayer and express yourself are so good. Um, yeah, there's mul- there's several songs I love on Ray of Light, but I don't love, love, love the whole album uh, from like start to finish as I do for bedtime stories. Oh, uh, see, no, I love that whole album from start to finish, like every single song. And I, I do like love. Ray of Light and I did want that to win the Grammy when it was nominated that year. But I mean, we're still talking about an album I love. It's just my number two. I actually, um, I would say my number two would be like a virgin, but the 1985 reissue. Oh, okay. That included into the groove because I still, I still believe that that is probably her best song. Like a virgin? No, into the groove, not like oh, a virgin. Into the groove. That oh. I think I think like a virgin was the least interesting was- song on on that album. But I think you have like Material Girl on you there. Definitely have Material Girl, Angel, on it, yeah. um, over and over, which I think was a really great song. Oh, I like over and over a lot. Um, Dress you up, which I love. I love. Yeah, that. yeah, and then and then in the '85 reissue, you get into the groove on that. Um, I'm trying to remember Stay. I'm not sure that I can because I always confuse it with Shakespeare's Sister's Stay. Um, but but anyway, I, I just feel like that was that would be my number two, but the reissue that includes Into the Groove. And that's where that's where Love Don't Live Here Anymore came from, right? Uh, ba- it's like a ballad. It's, it's definitely a slower. Let me see if Love Don't Live Here. Lower oh, tempo one. Because that's on her... Um, the ballads album she did in the mid nineties that had, um, yes. love don't live here is on that one. So yeah. Yes, 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 yes. Um, Oh, although true blue. I think I like, I, I, I like all the albums from the 80s. I know, and I, it's sort of, but, it's sort of yeah. like, Oh wait, but then I forgot about true blue. This was a really good album too. Um, yeah, because you had Papa Don't Preach, Open Your Heart, which was Papa Don't Preach at. is amazing. Papa yeah. Don't Preach is one of her all time best. Live I to Tell is another. To tell. True Blue, which I always thought was La Isla Bonita, which I adored when I was a kid. You know, that's her favorite song of hers. That's the only one she will always play on every concert tour. Really? Yeah, I don't and, know about that. I, and she must be partial to that sound because when she did Deeper and Deeper for the Erotica album, she insisted on putting the flamenco sound in the middle. So. That's kind of, I guess, her jam. It's I, it's a great friggin' song. It really so is. So one of the cool. other songs on that album is Jimmy Jimmy, mm-hmm. which is a deep cut, but I loved it because I just thought it had a cool sound. Like, I was like seven years old when I got this album, um, and I would just always listen to it. I did not realize until, I don't know, 20, 25 years later that it's a song about James Dean. <laughs> um, and I'm looking at the Like a Prayer um 
no, you know what? Like a prayer was a great song and I love that song and I loved Oh Father, but the rest of it I could have lived without. I never liked Express Yourself. I thought that was shit. Loved it. Loved Hated it. Hated Cherish. Okay. Um, no, I don't like Cherish. Those were the ones, the only ones I liked on that one was Like a Prayer and Oh Father. Oh Father scared the shit out of me when I was little because it was just like a sad song about, you know, like her family problems at the, that she was reconciling at the time. And so when I was little, it was like a very spooky video to me. But I listened to it later in life and I'm like, oh, I like that song a lot. Yeah, I think it's a beautiful song. But the thing was, like, I was not in love with this album. And I think that this came out, it looks like, 89. And that is yes. about the time I gave up on her because I just thought like mm-hmm. a prayer was was shit and then erotica came out and even that i was like nope not with that and bedtime stories i couldn't by then i could not get behind it and then when ray of light came out i was like ah like it was just like holy shit this is this is the music i love and was even able to stick with her through the next album with music well i i agree that erotica is the the low point that's that whole window of time i think is her nadir but um i loved the dick tracy album i loved the dick tracy movie i loved vogue which was not in the movie but was on the soundtrack um and i loved her through you know all of the movie theme songs she did like this used to be my playground and i'll remember um so i really liked all of that but she she won me over again with bedtime stories, and then after that was when she did the the greatest hits album of the ballads that had "You'll See" on it, and then I was impressed with Evita. So it was like all one big, um, like c- kind of victory lap through the mid '90s between bedtime stories, um, straight through Ray of Light, um, and I think music was a good album too. Yeah. Um, but then she's like lost me after like, I would yeah. say maybe, maybe I was all right with confessions on a dance floor, but then by, by hard candy, I was gone again. I, she, I, I like confessions on a dance floor. Um, I think that's a pretty good album. Never again. Nothing after that. Yeah. <laughs> Didn't like hard candy. Any of them. No rebel heart. Like none of them. No, nothing. Yeah. Like rebel heart. I just was like, what is going on here? Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, we've really dosy doed all over the place, but um yeah. We've hit a lot. We we've hit a lot. So, um you guys, what's your favorite Madonna album? Yeah, you you all have to have one. Yeah, we we need to know what is your favorite. She's had so many. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. More, yeah. more more than most. Oh, and who's that girl? I'm sorry. That remains one of my favorite movies. Are you kidding me? I'm not. I love that movie. I, love, I well I have I, I I love that movie, and I keep threatening Alyssa that we're going to watch it at some point. Um, and a friend of the podcast, Robert Griffin, is listening. I, I know you're probably a fan of it, too. No, that movie is a total childhood pleasure of mine, and I love it. I love it. I love it. And one of the yeah, other actresses – yeah, Alyssa's just like, it's not who's that girl, is it? Yeah. And <laughs> one of the – one of the other actresses in the movie uh, is in uh, – she's a New York-based actress. So I've seen her in the last year on stage. Um, and um, her name is Haviland Morris. Um, and she's very good, and it's always a treat when I see Wendy her. Wendy Worthington. Wendy Worthington, <laughs> who was better known probably for 16 Candles. But, but yeah, it's amazing. The shit that you know, you know so well. I know. And Griffin Dunn. Griffin Dunn, oh. who – 
who that was how he discovered him before I realized he was part of the illustrious Dunn dynasty. Yes. Um, yeah. And dove into the deep end Madonna was uh, just absolutely, I thought, effervescent Look, in this I think film. she's charming in it. I think, you know, people wanted to shit all over her in movies, but when she was younger and she was really trying, I think there was something really charming there. And honestly, I thought she was spectacular in Desperately Seeking Susan, which is she another is. one that remains one of my favorite films to this day. It was that, who, who's that girl in Desperately Seeking Susan? Yeah, and that's the one that, you know, people always hold up. She's great in it. And Desperately Seeking Susan is a big part of the reason why I wanted to move to New York. I feel like I've heard that from many people. Like, as soon as, like, I saw that New York, I was like, I need to move there. And then, you know, 10 years later, I find myself in a CD club downtown somewhere watching bizarre magic acts. It was perfect. I feel like I just missed that New York. You weren't here for that? Mm, I mean, I moved here 17 years ago, almost to the day. I feel like that scene was kind of... What year was that? Would that have been? 2003. Oh, yeah, you did kind of miss it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was here on the tail end of it. I mean, I remember Subway Tokens. Yeah, yeah, I I was a MetroCard guy by the time I moved here. Yeah, and I was like, I like was holding onto those subway tokens with my with my fist, like I didn't want to give them up. I was so anti MetroCard. I loved tokens, um, but yeah, that was. Um, I have to say, the the filmmaker of, of Desperately Seeking Susan uh, Susan Seidelman is kind of one of the unsung greats. Like she was a great independent filmmaker. She's one of the great New York documentarians uh i can't give enough plaudits to her um so i just wanted to to give a shout out her way you know we talk about independent films now but they're usually you know covered by an umbrella company and it's everyone has better resources now even to make films on their own like she was really a pioneer she really had a great vision she cast great people let's not forget laurie metcalf made her debut in desperately seeking susan um the actor Mark Blum that we just recently lost yeah. to COVID nineteen is in that, and he's yeah. wonderful. I mean that that, that whole movie was so great. Many. She worked she worked great with actors. She had a great stylistic eye, both when it came to cinematography and editing and some costume design. I mean, she's wonderful. Yeah. Oh my god. What is that? Hold a good on. oh my god. This is a good oh my god. I think I found that movie. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. You guys, I think I might have found that movie. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Maybe, maybe, maybe not. Wait, tell me what we're looking for. Okay. Remember a while ago I was telling you that I saw a movie on, like, one of the independent film channels, and I was like... Oh, yeah. And it was like this where it was like the... The, the mom was schizophrenic and it was like, she had these beautiful, like sort of angelic children. And it was kind of about her nervous breakdown. And it was one of the most extraordinary movies I've ever seen. And I had no idea who that actress was, but I had seen her in things before. So it was like one of those, I know who you are. I actually think it might've been Anna Thompson. 
Oh, interesting. Who is in Desperately Seeking Susan? And a whole bunch of things that I would have loved, like True Romance. She's in, and she's in Unforgiven. She's the one whose attack gets the whole thing started. Yeah, and, and, who was also, and was also on the Tracy Ullman show. Yeah, and Something Wild, which was another movie that I absolutely, so she's one of those actors that I would have known. So let me see, and she was in Cafe Society, and I think I might have found her. Yes, and the movie was called Angela. No shit. And it was Rebecca Miller wow. who directed it. Like, Rebecca Miller, like, Arthur Miller's, like... Yeah, yeah, Rebecca yeah, Miller, Arthur Rebecca Miller's Miller. daughter and Daniel yeah. Lewis's wife. Wow, yeah, yeah she did. So, yeah, 10-year-old Angela and her little sister Ellie moved to an old house in the countryside with her parents, May and Andrew, and their mother has a mental illness and has just left an institution. And it is the most extraordinary john ventimiglia is the husband vincent gallo is in it which i had completely forgotten wow that's how you know it's a 90s indie uh peter fascinelli played lucifer oh my god he must have been so young francis conroy was in it as Anne's mom this movie you guys if you can find it and it says here it's available on amazon i don't know if that's to stream or to buy i'm on imdb this is one of the most extraordinary movies I have ever seen. It has stayed with me for, I would say, 95. It came out, maybe I saw it on the Independent Film Channel in 97. So we're talking, what, 20-odd years that this movie has stuck? Almost 25 years that this movie has stuck with me in my brain. It is absolutely extraordinary. I think you have to buy it on Amazon, but don't let us deter you from giving it a try. I, I'm going to see if I can too. Yeah, I am probably going to buy it because it is one of those movies Woo-hoo. that I have just, I have, it has just, ever since I saw it, it was like, I want to see that again. I it, can't believe, that's amazing. I love how that stuff comes back. Yeah, and so I was just scrolling through the um, Desperately Seeking Susan IMDb, and I went, oh my God, Anna Thompson, that's who it is, that's who it is. And lo and behold, there it is. <gasps> I feel so relieved. <laughs> this has been in my brain for years because I, I can't remember. I couldn't remember who the actor was and I couldn't remember the movie. God, I feel better only in that I didn't know the movie. So it's not something I should have known and forgot. It's just one that I never saw. I don't, I didn't even really know of it yeah and now i do it it was absolutely stunning an absolutely stunning movie oh i'm gonna have to find this because that's this is the kind of filmmaking that i really first fell in love with so i mean heartbreaking i mean look you know i come at it you know my mom had schizophrenia so i come at it with a parent well parents that have mental illness like growing up in a house where mental illness was an a fact of life and just watching this movie i was like oh my god this could be about my life like somebody has finally put my childhood down on on film and not only that they've made it somewhat accurate instead of like this because the the sort of trick with this with mental illness like like schizophrenia is that it's not a big dramatic blow up like it's so much more insidious than that and it is so because there are moments there are almost moments where the 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 insanity can almost take you away. I don't know how to describe yes. it. Yes, yeah. Where no, I think that's a well articulated description. Where it can sort of pull you, it can, it can pull you in, and it kind of takes you someplace else. 
And not that it's a violent thing or, or a bad thing. And in certain ways it's, I mean, for some, again, for somebody who grew up with it, it's almost a comforting thing. And so to sort of watch the, how that, how she told that story was so like, like, oh my God, like the, the, like it, it was just truly breathtaking for me to, to see it and be involved in it. And you know, and right down to like when my mom had her, had her psychotic breaks, like she was always talking to God and she was like religious iconography was like a very big thing. And, and so right down to the paranoia and having Lucifer there and the Virgin Mary and all of the other sort of trappings of Catholicism and, you know, Christian religion was like, holy shit. Like, it was like, oh my God, did you grow up with me? How do you know all this? Like, it was, mm. it was really, really extraordinary. So, um, you know, I, I, I can't recommend this enough, obviously. If you can find it. Yeah. Yeah. If you can find it, get it, watch it. It is absolutely, if, and you have to love independent films. I mean, like this is not for somebody who like can't, like I could never watch this with my husband. Like he would just be like, are you kidding me? But he's like, nothing blows up. What are we doing? Yeah. You know, but if you do have an appreciation for quieter independent films, um, good stories, really, really well told. Um, I don't remember if there's much of a plot here. Um, I think that there is about, you know, the kids and it is kind of harrowing because you do worry about the safety of the kids because the mom is unhinged as much as the mom loves her kids. She's still not dealing, you know, she's not dealing in reality here. So there's also like a real sort of like ache where you're like, are these kids going to be okay? You know, I don't remember much about the plot line of their dad, but he's there, but absent. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause, and, and that's fair enough. The husband's dealing with some heavy shit too. You know, I mean, it's not easy to be married to somebody who's schizophrenic. No. So anyway, um, absolutely extraordinary. I'm so excited. I found it. Wow. Yes. What a, what a discovery way to pick that one all the way back up off the floor. Oh my God. Phew. Okay. Well, I consider that a happy ending. I do too. See, even when Melrose Place sucks, we still find some good in it. <laughs> That's right. We're Let bringing it back it. around for people that don't listen to... If you're not on the block, the, if you're only in the, the boulevard. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Know that we are slogging through a really, really awful season of Melrose Place, but it was but all worth it for... to bring me here. That's right. Here we are. And here we go. So thank you all again. We hope you are staying safe. Um, and continue... And yeah, continue to stay safe as, as states try and reopen. Yep. Um, we have some time to be watching and reading and listening to things. So if there's anything you want us to talk about, we're all for it. Let us know. Back on the Block Pod on Facebook is the best way to reach us. Um, and, uh, yeah, otherwise we will see you guys again next week where we talk about more Melrose, more boulevarding. We'll be doing it all over again. Yeah, again, you guys kind of have the, the steering wheel in your hands. You let us know, and we'll do it. Okay, so, Doug, until next time. Take care, and we'll see you back on the boulevard. Bye. Bye.